0: Dr. Amalia Ghanias-Malka, welcome to Humanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is Ms. Usha Dwaka Kanabadi who is Mauritius's Secretary of Foreign Affairs. She has held numerous postings in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including serving as High Commissioner of Mauritius in India. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. You've recently attended the 37th SADC Summit, which was themed partnering with the private sector in developing industry and regional value change. Industrial development is obviously a core focus of SADC's development integration agenda all for driving sustainable economic growth to create employment and naturally reduce poverty. Can you share with us some of the highlights from the event and if it fulfilled your expectations? I think it
1: was a great event in that it brought together a number of people to reflect on, on themes of common concern to SADC. Perhaps the central message I take away ...is the eradication of poverty. I think Minister Maite made it very clear... ...that people talk about alleviation of poverty. In fact, we should be talking about eradication of poverty. And this brought me back to what Indira Gandhi had started at her time... ...Garibi Hatau, remove poverty. So it's not a new phenomenon. It's simply that now... ...the phenomenon of removing poverty or alleviating poverty is beginning to be seen not from one perspective only, Mm. from the government perspective. Now the central focal point is government working with the private sector to eradicate poverty and working with civil society as well to do
0: that. And if I'm not mistaken, eradication of poverty also forms part of the Sustainable Development Goals. It does form part of the Sustainable Development Goals. I think it
1: does form part of basic human rights that we uh, perhaps have overlooked uh, unwillingly. All these years, and what I think is important now is the identification of what poverty means in different societies. Of course, there is one universal norm that at least a person has got to be able to have a decent meal, shelter, and you know sufficient um, access to education as well. But uh, what I what I believe now is different is the coming together of different parts of society. To work towards eradication of poverty is one. And two, the emphasis governments are laying now on empowerment, and that includes the empowerment of women, especially. Women, uh, if I take the case of Mauritius and a small island, which is part of the territory of Mauritius called Rodrigue, where it's mostly a matriarchal society. That's interesting. So uh, you have a lot of um, single-parent families, and I think the women there are amongst the strongest that I know, And I think their empowerment, knowing that they're the breadwinner and the rarer of the family, if I can say it that way, makes a difference. So you need to go out and help these women because they have to get out of that poverty trap where some of them have been lended with uh, having numerous children, etc. But beyond that, I think you you really need to find new ways of eradicating poverty without hurting the self-respect and dignity of the people who are poor.
0: And there's several programs which come into play, but I always think that when you are doing things with dignity, when you are doing things from yourself and you are being not a hand out but a hand up, you've got greater benefit. And one of the areas that I find quite frustrating is from a financial inclusion perspective that women often have limited access to finance. And I think the reality is the only way that you can come out of a poor economic situation is by having access to finance.
1: Having access to finance is certainly important, and we take the example of the Gramin Bank in Bangladesh, which was started, and, well, many much of the microcredit went to women entrepreneurs, who actually, which actually helped them to grow. But, I mean, for you to have access to finance, it presupposes that you already have collaterals, that you already are the owner of something that will earn that finance, which women in many countries are not. Exactly, particularly land. Particularly land. But also beyond land, I mean, even tangible things. Uh, You either have to have a qualification, you have to have some kind of stable employment, something that is a collateral even in theoretical terms for finance. Mm. Now, if you're not in employment and you want to create something yourself, what guarantees do you have to offer to anyone to get that finance? So I think Mauritius certainly has been uh, laying a lot of emphasis on credit for entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs. And our current Minister for Enterprise, I must say, has laid a lot of emphasis on uh, the role and the support that can give, that could be given to an entrepreneur. Now, what we did to help him was to organize a sort of AGOA workshop. AGOA is the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act that allows us to export towards the United States. And we thought we need to do one thing. The big companies export to the US because they meet all the norms. The small entrepreneur cannot meet all the norms. The women especially, uh, they have more difficulty because being an entrepreneur also means being a housewife at the same time and handling both uh, office and home. So what we thought was, let's bring in some experts from overseas. The U.S. Embassy helped us, so we brought in experts. And then we said to them, okay, now we'll look at your products Many of the products will never get to that market, so we'll leave them aside and we can deal with them differently. But some of the products were sufficiently good to get to that market. You needed just to upgrade a little bit. So this is where the American experts came in, and we act as mediator because of language issues as well on how to be able to to connect these two markets. And then I suggested to them, you know what we need to do? We need to create a website for these women, uh, assisted by professionals uh, who can give immediate answers in English, and in commercial terms. The women know how to create the product. They don't know how to commercialize their product. They don't know how to answer the questions about whether it meets uh, 80% needs or it was an eco-product or whatever it is. So you need that professional lynch, the, the banyan, as I say, the median between the two, the market and the producer, to do that. For women more than men, because women will not take the time necessarily to go and learn about all the requirements of a market. She is simply satisfied if she has sold so much to meet her requirements.
0: And I think the other point goes back to where you were talking about managing the dual role of home and mm. and work, that she possibly simply doesn't have enough time to go and invest into thoroughly investigating markets because she is balancing her, her household at the same time.
1: Absolutely. But it just brings me back to a story I was trying to tell you about German Greer. Many years ago, I missed a talker. On the 8th of March, Women's Day in in, uh, Geneva, where I was serving. And one of my colleagues from Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Marianne Richards, called me and said, Where were you? I said, I was busy working, right? And said, Usha, you should have come to the talk. I said, Why? She said, That's exactly what Mrs. Greer said. That when women and men join an organization, they look at it differently. The woman comes in and looks at the organization, looks at the work. Then she starts making lists. What I have to do for home, what I have to do for work, and what I have to do for everybody else, not what I have to do for myself, probably. The man comes in, looks at the organization, looks around, he looks at the work, and then he thinks, who can I give this to? And then he starts looking at the network and says, hmm, this is the one who's back I must pat, this is the one I must hug, this is the one I must avoid. I was so absolutely
0: stunned. Because what she was saying resonated the bell, you know. Strategic delegation. But to that point, it's about the strength of networks, and it's about the strength of looking at how you can manage your organisation to achieve what you want as your personal agenda, as well as the the entity's agenda.
1: I think I think women are we're very good with family networks. We're the ones who know, the family network. We're the ones who make sure that the cousin, sister in laws, niece engagement is attended to, and as a gift on the table for that person. But at the same time, professionally, we don't get. We don't take time to develop these networks. In Geneva, again, uh, Miriam myself a few other colleagues we founded a women's network. I did this be- we did this because we noticed that there were very few women diplomats, first of all. We didn't go for beers at night. We usually had coffee in the coffee shop. So we decided that the women were going to gang together and at least help each other out, whether it's with hairdressers, children minding or whatever it was, but at least sharing. But amazingly enough, the WTO secretariat and the Uh, Other secretariats around the UN and everybody else, they have a lot of women. So creating a small women's network did help us sort of feel that we could grow as a small network. I don't know whether it's still there, but at the time certainly it was helpful, I think, having that one.
0: Well, I think what has surprised me in a pleasant way has been looking at the number of female diplomats in the South African perspective. Yes. (laughs) So there are are large numbers, which for me shows that there are more and more women coming into the foreign affairs space. And at a global level, it's not just concentrated to one particular region or country. And on that note, I'd like to find out, in your current position as Secretary of Foreign Affairs, if you could share with us a bit more of the work that you do and some of the responsibilities that come with holding this position.
1: Okay, let me me tell you, first of all, I think you have a... Great number one diplomat, Maite uh, Nkwana Mashabane, I think is a role model for many women diplomats in the Foreign Service in South Africa. And the few women uh, I have met from the South African delegation have always been very strong women, and I think they, they get inspired. So I think you'll find that there are more women in Africa and Asia in the diplomatic service than you will necessarily find in the Western world. As much surprising this can be. I mean, in trade, certainly I have seen this to be the case. As I told you, very often I've been the only woman in the hall, so I'm used to it. But then as time goes by, I find an increasing feminization of government services across the world. And uh, the emergence of women diplomats to me is a natural part of this. You know, it will happen in Mauritius right now. I don't have as many as I would have liked to. It's about one third, but I think we're growing there. More and more women are getting there. But it's a hard job to be a woman diplomat because... If we look at the tradition of looking after home and looking after work, um, although you share it with your spouse, that uprooting of the family every so many years can be a disturbing factor, whether you're a man or a woman. But even more so if you're a woman, because it's easier, even now, because of mentalities for a woman to follow a man than for a man to follow a woman out for the job. But as double-career couples grow across the world and the world gets globalized, I think maybe there's less uh, judgment on the matter than there used to be. Now, coming back to my job, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs is uh, the, the, the person who comes right after the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who is the person responsible for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, both from an accounting perspective, so I'm the head of administration, as well as the head of policy. Now, to add to my woes, if, if I can say it that way, my ministry is not simply a Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I would double up as a secretary for trade. I also am responsible for all the international trade and all the trade negotiations we're doing in Mauritius, and I'm also responsible for regional integration. There are three components, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, international trade, and regional integration. And currently, Mauritius chairs the Indian Ocean Commission. So we have that responsibility of... Uh, being responsible for regional economic communities, but also the concept of regional integration itself. My job is like any other job. You direct foreign policy, you direct trade policy, you decide what other movements you're going to be making for regional integration, you look after anything concerning the lack of a car in whatever mission there is and the broken window pane in wherever happens as well. But I'm supported by Mm. administrative staff to do that.
0: It's an exciting portfolio, I'd say.
1: Not too exciting when you have to worry about, uh, about, about uh, staff, uh, staff's personal woes, but it's an exciting portfolio in the sense that foreign policy and international trade going together with regional integration is just the dynamics that you need to make things happen. I mean, you can see can mm-hmm. see
0: Yes, that each they're other, totally
1: complementary. Exactly, each other. they're complementary.
0: And are there any particular collaborations that you're working on in the continent?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the continent right now. The focus is on the CFTA, Continental Free Trade Area. The free trade area itself. We we're talking about trade negotiations. Um, are there special collaborations? The diplomatic services or trade don't di- directly collaborate. What What we do is we we work together On a number of issues. I'll just give you one example. Uh, we'll be uh, making an intervention at the summit, SADC summit this uh, week, is to point out two things. One, I'm calling. I'm informing SADC of a meeting that will be held by the Indian Ocean Commission that's going to be regrouping uh, Ministers for Home Affairs. Why? This is related to drug trafficking and human trafficking. We believe that we need to look at close, we we, as SADC, need to look closer at real issues affecting our countries and economies. Traditional diplomacy needs to emerge to have a business outlook but it also must take care of sustainable development goals and every other element that's on Agenda 2063. If we are to create secure conditions for trade to take place, or for uh, diplomacy to take place, you need to have those secure conditions created by joining hands. The thing that's affected the most in the recent years has been the fact that the drug trade has been coming down south, impacting on many of our countries. So when the drug trade arrives here, we discovered much to our this may that what we had taken for granted in terms of exchange of information was not really happening. Every time there was a problem arising, we had to go and hunt for someone to get the information. So we, we've spoken to the UNODC. The Indian Ocean Commission is going to try and create a memorandum of understanding with the UNODC to create a platform whereby the Indian Ocean islands which have been severely impacted, I think mostly Seychelles and Mauritius can actually work together so that they exchange information on any form of trafficking. You know, we worked well together to fight piracy. We had a platform. This morning I had a word we had a conversation with Mr Pascal Lamy of the European Union explaining also where we want to go. And I think there is merit in having those platforms created for us to come back together, human trafficking and drug trafficking. So I think SADC needs to look at this closely, and we will be inviting them for the Indian Ocean Conference. The other thing is we want SADC to be more involved in other trade negotiations, not only the continental ones, but the one that we're likely to have with the European Union on uh, post-Cotonou, the new trading arrangements post-Cotonou after 2020. It's always been left to Brussels. And our missions in Brussels to handle this. SADC, COMESA, the regional uh, groupings, and African Union must take a greater interest in this and formulate their positions. And I think the same thing should happen when it comes to African growth and Opportunity Act. Same thing should happen when it comes to Brexit. So I mean, as you will see, a lot of trade spills over onto mm. diplomacy there, but it's a natural thing, and it's only that way that we can grow regional integration.
0: If we have created common platforms to work on, this is how we will integrate. And in that commonality, it's also about taking responsibility because I think in the past, Africa was a victim to letting things go by and being a little subservient to what was happening. But this sounds like we've got greater active participation and contribution into our affairs and affairs of the world. Well, you know, 50 years after colonization
1: went away you know either we grow up or we don't grow up mm-hmm. Mauritius will be celebrating 50 years of independence next year so I mean we need in Africa to start worrying about our own things uh, again I, I come back to your minister she mentioned yesterday that Africa is 30 times uh, bigger than India how come they take more interest on the other side than with us and this morning again something was mentioned to me that perhaps the biggest mistake that was made in Africa was the frontiers And the creation of the frontiers encourage people to consolidate these frontiers. So rather than to see ourselves as one Africa, we're worried that when we go into a negotiation, I might lose out a little bit and the other one will win a little bit more. You know, that... Is all diplomacy.
0: It is, but that silo mentality, it's, it's pervasive beyond just within the diplomatic space, but also in terms of the, the corporate environment as well, where everyone wants to own their section and gets quite possessive over what they have and their contributions, that the, no one else is, is taking credit for something that they've done. <laughs> I totally agree
1: with you. But what I'm trying to say is that we need to evolve a mentality. You know, with sustainable development goals, nobody is going to manage this alone. So if we're going to join hands to do sustainable development goals, we better join hands to make sure each other, everybody else, is going to benefit in a negotiation. It's no longer I win, you lose. It's really got to be I win, you win, because without you, in any case, I'm not going anywhere.
0: Yes, I I like that philosophy and having a a sum of all gains. (laughs) You're listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band also available on DSTV channel 802. Today, we're talking to Ms. Usha Dwaka Kanabadi, who is the Secretary of Foreign Affairs for Mauritius. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. One of the things that Womanity, Women in Unity uh, deals with is gender, and that's clearly one of the, the main guises of the program. And gender equality is, is a particularly important issue. And firstly, I'd like to ask you, what is the state of gender equality in Mauritius?
1: I would think that Mauritius is quite good, you know, in terms of gender equality. It's been growing with the years. Um, there's been some quite legislation adopted that's been helping. Uh, you know, we need to adopt the legislation to make sure that people at least have a legal framework to which they can refer. So I think the adoption of several pieces of legislation from the Equal Opportunities Act, I think in 2009, um, uh, the, the uh, amendment to Article 16 of the Constitution to make discrimination on the basis of sex is just not possible. These are elements which have helped. But at the same time, look at the irony of it all. You amend Article 16 to make sex discrimination not acceptable, but that also means you can no longer give positive discrimination to women or programs to women as well. So you have difficulties joining the SADC uh, uh, gender protocol because of that, for example. I personally believe that the Education Act the gesture made by Mauritius to give free education to children up to tertiary level has made a big difference. Education to me is the only way in which women can move ahead and can change mentalities. If you look at the civil service again, I'll come back to what I was saying earlier we see an increasing feminization of the civil service Mm -hmm. and uh, recently um, the International Trade Division and the Regional Integration Division in the ministry recruited analysts and I was a little bit chuffed to find that Um, Six analysts in trade, five women, one man. Six analysts in regional integration, five women, one man. (laughs) So I thought that seems to be growing. I just need to um, – I'll take one example again. At the level of parliament, in 2000, we had 5.7% of women in parliament. Today, we have 11.4%. Slow growth, much below the select target. But I think it's growing slowly and slowly – It's a mentality thing, isn't it? People are getting round to accepting that women are in parliament. There's a woman speaker, there are women ministers, and they're not only ministers for gender. The minister of education, which takes one quarter of the budget of government, Is a a, a woman
0: And I think it works both ways One from a point of view of acceptance And recognition that women can Achieve this, that women are in those positions And also from a point of view Of role modelling and mentorship That women can aspire and recognise That this is possible That women can hold these positions Absolutely, I mean I
1: I think women in those positions Never think of it that way And then we realise that perhaps yes, other people are looking at it And thinking that these are posts Which we can aspire to which would not normally have been the case. But I just want to come back quickly, I mean, um, when, to the civil service, you know. Today when we looked at the number of highest positions in the civil service, we found 28.6% of women occupy senior positions. Now, the younger generation coming in as assistant permanent secretaries, 59.7% already are women, 60% already are women. So whether you like it or not, the civil service... Derided by so many, but which at the end of the day takes so many decisions, both for government, for restructuring, for making things happen. Well, that civil service it's is going to be... For the country. For the country, is going to be run largely by women in the years to come as I see it. The uh, judiciary in Mauritius has always had a lead, I must say. Half the judges are women and magistrates as well. I think there are 70% of the current magistrates are women.
0: So given the current framework, the feminization of, of the... Diplomatic core and and affairs And education was one of the areas that you highlighted And I know that you have a particular interest in education When I looked at your CV, you spent a long time in the ministry In your opinion, which areas do you think we need to build on To improve and benefit for women in the future?
1: I'm not sure I can give an answer to which areas we need to focus on to improve on I think we need to do two things One is formal education One, the time the child goes to kindergarten, let's make sure they have role models. Let's make sure that the men and women are seen as equal. I don't see why we don't have more male kindergarten teachers. We only have female kindergarten teachers. It starts there. Or you could have both, raising the children together, you know. Second thing is that mentalities will grow Then it comes to home. Media. Recently, I read an article which was saying, like, uh, the arrival of more women in the civil service have not made much difference. I've never known this person to say the presence of men in the civil service should have made a difference. I'm just telling you mentality because the mentality is more pervasive than we think. And the media is not sufficiently um, screened to that extent in shaping mentalities and ways of thinking. So I think we need to have that education outside, which is perhaps even more important for the older minds and for the younger minds within the formalized educational system itself. But beyond that, we need to find some... Ways of doing positive discrimination to help women be present. I'm, I'm against a quota system for politics, for example, or for anything for women. Why is that? But because I don't feel that we should be in on the basis of quota. I think maybe it's a question of ego. I'm feeling like, what the hell, I'm good enough to be there. Why should I need a quota to be there, right? But then I say to myself in my mind now when I look back, you don't have the problem if you're good and you're at the top. You have the problem when people start looking at the middle management. If there is a woman who is less good than her colleagues, if a man is less good than her colleagues, they will not say men. If a woman is less good than her colleagues, they will say woman. They suddenly um, find a sex to that less weak. And it's a whole package. It's a whole package. I, I, I hadn't noticed this until recently when I had somebody saying, well, we shouldn't be posting women there. And I said, well, you have to let them decide whether they want to go there or not. You know, you can't decide for them. But... That mentality, I'm not sure we can eradicate it so easily. But by forcing the quotas there, by ensuring that presence for the next 10 years, 15 years, it might just be that it becomes a natural mm-hmm. thing. You
0: see, sometimes I look at it as a ticket to the game. So yeah. if you've got a quota system there, for me it's about being able to get women to that point. And I look at it as something which would change over time. Because obviously we believe in a meritocracy. I mean, I think anyone who wants to be in a position, you want to feel that you earned that role Mm -hmm. and you deserve to be there. But if you have all of the qualifications and the criteria of of being there, but because you are a woman, you're denied access, that's where I see the quota system as a a shift. I agree.
1: I think quotas are over, over a limited period of time until we get where we need to get. Now, we've got to accept things. I mean, there are never going to be more women drivers lorry drivers and men lorry drivers. There might never be more um, men models and women models or whatever you want, you know. Mm. But again, uh, we've just got to accept it. And it really doesn't matter whether we have 50-50, whether it's 40-60, 30-70, as long
0: as the route to get there is not discriminatory towards the gender part. Exactly, that that opportunity is, is always there. You mentioned earlier the emphasis on formal education and uh, I'm certainly an advocate of education. But I'd like you to share with us some of your views of education, particularly in the hands of women as a tool to change not only their lives, but also the next generation's lives for the better.
1: Women, so we own our own worst and sometimes, but I mean, if we've been brought up in a system that says that the woman must be nice and nurturing and uh, mustn't be spoken about, what do you expect that person to inculcate to her son or her daughter, the same values, and those same values means that this is entrenched in you for generations to come. You raise a son, and that son will live seventy years or eighty years. So for the next eighty years, you created that mentality.
0: A vicious circle.
1: Yes, and the second, the person who comes after you, your daughter, will carry a little bit of that mentality as well forward. So. The nurturing part, the informal part, needs real shaking up. I think people have values that are entrenched in us, and we have to live with those values, but at the same time we need to see the rationale as well, that many of these values did not have a good rationale behind it, and we need to be able to shake that up. You cannot do it simply through a formal system of education. You need to move that a little bit. And this is why, to make kindergarten children kindergarten need to have both male and female teachers. Mm. Why aren't we having more men there?
0: And I read, I recall, I think sort of uh, children between the ages of four to six, that's sort it of remains. their most formative Absolutely. years. So that's when they're seeing these role models and, and identities.
1: But just to tell you, my basic training was in psychology. What I wanted to do was to write the curriculum of children, school curriculum. I wanted to decide what children I had to study. And uh, so I've done a lot of teacher training for youngsters as well, for the for the teachers of kindergarten as well. And I'd realised then that we have a – even in what we're putting in their minds is a bias. If it was up to me, I would open a kindergarten. I'd bring an old washing machine and put it there and open it and say, guys, let's look how this is working, right? Open up the minds. Let them think. Let them stop thinking about gender. Let all the men and women clumber clam, over the washing machine and go find out what it's made up of. I discover together a good so you call. don't have to discover separately.
0: <laughs> Staying with the gender agenda, building female leadership capacity, I think, is incredibly important for the future of women to the continent. And I'm impressed that Mauritius has a female president. And I want to find out more of your opinion of female leadership in Africa and if you think more countries are ready for a woman president,
1: I think so. Yes, we. we I think it's wonderful. Mauritius has a great female president. She's a. She's a, a person uh, the young people and the young women, I'm sure, uh, look up to. And uh, she's not an executive president, but she's a, she's a, the head of state. Um, we have a woman speaker, who occupies a very prominent position. That's higher than ministers. We have women ministers. We have women in a lot of prominent positions, I think that's important. Across Africa, you'll find even more women in prominent positions. And I think the case of um, um, President Johnson Sirleaf, who is now left, and with what dignity? I mean, you know, I mean, such a role model to look upon, a person who's done so well for Africa. But there's many others. I can imagine this country being run by a woman president. I can imagine many countries in Africa being run by, by a woman president, Joyce Banda, and Malawi. I mean, there have been lots of examples in Africa where we can have more and more women. I have I have no doubt about that. Uh, now, the question is whether the the issue is one of womanity, as you would say it, or the question is of belonging to a clan, a group, or whatever it is. In Mauritius, I think... Uh, Mrs. Garib Fakim was on the basis of her merits. She's a scientist. She's done a lot of work, uh, proposed the appointment to, to the role of presidency. But in other cases where you have to fight elections to become president, you need to belong to political groups, right? Of course. So is it only the gender issue or is it the grouping issue that also counts, for example? But to me, Africa can be a leader in this. I have no doubt whatsoever.
0: I'm really glad to hear that. One of the questions which I ask all my guests on this program who've made significant contributions to their respective fields is about some of the factors to their success. So some people speak about hard work, perseverance. Can you share with us some of the factors that you think have contributed to making you the person you are today?
1: That's a difficult question. I think certainly the, you know, you always think of yourself that Am I a person anybody looks at as being a success? Right? (laughs) You want to? If that is the case now, am I supposed to find what made me actually become that? (laughs) And then you go back and look, well, I think family is the most important, right? And in family, I think certainly my grandmother was a widow, a foreigner, and a widow at the age of 32 in a small island. So, I mean, you have to survive. She was the owner, and my grandmother would have been over 100 today had she been alive, so you imagine the times. My father, who financed the university education of my mother, even after she was married and had three children, and he paid for her to go and study, when he himself was not a university graduate, that demands some kind of courage.
0: And progressive thinking.
1: And progressive thinking. My mother who herself, I think, came back and decided she was not going to give in to all these rituals and rites and all this. You know, she was a very strong-headed person, had a hands-on approach to things. In fact, today I'm talking to you, and it's exactly one year since she passed away. And I'm very much very sorry I'm not home, but I think I've had a great mother. She was very courageous. She was very brave. And I think she braved all the taboos to go and get a university education to bring back and to do what she had to do. And my uncle and auntie, my mum's brother and sister, my other aunties who've been in politics, who've done wonderful things. I mean, we have strong women and strong men in the family. So I think you get it from there. But also, I think, at work, when you start off work, when I walked into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the first question that was raised to me, somebody who was walking said, what will you do when you're married? I hadn't even thought about it at that time. And I didn't realize, maybe it was a good thing, I didn't realize the consequences of of what this job was going to bring for me. And I said, well, we'll cross the bridge when we come to it. And I just brushed him aside. Now, years later, when my husband and I had to take decisions, life was very complex, but somehow we managed it. But I've had a good husband, somebody who's had his own political career, who's uh, known what life is about, and who's had no ego issues. About our being having to be about my going to do a job running the show as we say, and he's doing other things. The only thing he's refused to do for me is lay my table or that kind of thing. And it's funny, I'm away from Mauritius, and they, just before I left, one of the banks called me and said, "You know, you used a sentence in our meeting the other day. Can we use that? We like that. We want to put it in our invitation card." I said, "What was the sentence?" Well, apparently, well, what I did actually, I told them. Our biggest problem as women in the banking system is that we do not have wives, we only have husbands. Now, we want that wife to look after our financial problems and to run the bank for us (laughs) and also to run the home for us, you know. (laughs) So I was saying that when women come to a bank, they're looking for a soulmate. That personal banker that you have, for a man, it's a person who will guide the financial transaction. For the woman, it's a subsister. Was going to say, by the way, you know, I've seen how your money is and I think you could make an investment there. By the way, you haven't done the payment for your son yet, you know. <laughs> so you're looking for that soul sister. So strong people are the people in our professional and personal surroundings who always made us feel that there are no barriers there. You just do what you have to do and get on with it.
0: I think that's a lovely perspective. Looking at the influence of people and support now lastly as we close out the show today it is the last program in women's month in south africa so we'd appreciate it if you could share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to convey to young women across the continent
1: and one of you like you will work together to make this place better there will always be obstacles in the way and I think there will always be high mountains, and there will be moments which are difficult. And I think what needs to keep us going is to look right and left to remember that out in Asia there, there was an Indira Gandhi. Out in Asia, there's been a Aung San Suu Kyi. Out in Africa, you've had Mrs. Sirleaf. You've had Mighty Mashabani. You've had Mrs. Zuma. You've had very strong women. Don't be... Derided or thwarted, but what newspapers have to say or people have to say? Look at the person. Look at these people who have achieved. Show me how many women you can show in Europe, and in Americas who have been as successful. In Africa as in Asia, I think we have woman power, because we have known how to handle more than our share. So I think together we will do it. Together we'll move. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that message of unity. It's been a wonderful pleasure having you on our show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to Ms. Usha Dwaka Kanabadi, who is the Secretary of Foreign Affairs for Mauritius.